T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. It flitted to the surface last summer when Lacey Peterson's husband, Scott Peterson, appealed his murder sentence. For those of you unfamiliar, the Lacey Peterson case was infamous in the Bay Area at the beginning of the millennium. I remember Lacey Peterson's face splashed across newspaper front pages. Her case had everything. She was beautiful, pregnant, and most likely murdered by her husband Scott and dumped in the San Francisco Bay off the Berkeley Marina. That case, and the case of another tragic Bay Area murder, the Sausage King, overlapped almost exactly when they originally went to trial in the spring of 2004. As a result, the Sausage King faded into the periphery as Lacey Peterson's took center stage. Until now. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Garevich, and this is The Sausage King. Episode 1, Stuart. My goal with this podcast is to tackle Stuart Alexander's transformation from the Sausage King of San Leandro to murderer. A local sausage maker in a small Bay Area town, Stuart Alexander reportedly dubbed himself the Sausage King instead of having the name bestowed upon him. This is a case that delves into layers of family legacy, conspiracy, small town gossip, and multiple homicides. And one could argue most importantly, sausage. I'm not normally a journalist that likes to be front and center in my stories. I think the last time I wrote in the first person was in my college diary. I think it involved a lot of angst about who was going to take me to my sorority formal and how I somehow got saddled with an 8 a.m. class my senior year. Not exactly stimulating. But I'm going to give it my best shot now because this won't just be a journey for listeners. It will be a journey for me as well as I try to understand what circumstances led to this triple murder case. Join me as I learn more about how the scion of a local sausage empire snapped, murdering two federal food inspectors and one state meat inspector in his factory, rocking a small but diverse city just 20 miles east of San Francisco. Although I am new to the world of podcasting, Crime has been in my blood for as long as I can remember. It began in the unlikeliest of places. Under fluorescent lights, surrounded by scratched linoleum, the monotonous beep of the checkout counter, at my local supermarket. This is where I realized murder was my calling. That is, learning about and reporting on crime stories. 
As a child, I waited almost weekly, stifling boredom while my mom's groceries were scanned and bagged. And can't forget the painfully slow dissemination of coupons. My eyes would scan the celebrity gossip magazines arranged in rows by the register. The glossy, bright colors intrigued me long before I could actually read the script adorning the covers. By the time I was six or seven, I could pick Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan out of a lineup. And then it happened. Previously lost in the blurbs adorning the front of people and in touch, promising new fashion trends or makeup tips, juicier fare came into focus. Kidnappings, murder, con men and women. My eyes widened every time I alighted on a new scandal. I'd beg my mom to buy me a copy. And occasionally she'd relent, most likely under the assumption I wanted to read about a young new actress. But I'd take it home, sit hidden away in my room, and flip past the gossip to the real attractions. I was delighted to read the salacious details of the latest crime, obsessed with the disappearance of Kristen Smart, the murder of Lacey Peterson, the kidnapping of J.C. Dugard. Any case from California, particularly my home, the San Francisco Bay Area, set my mind worrying about the what-ifs, details, and outcome. And there was plenty to comb through in the Bay Area. I don't know if it's the fog, the water, the sloping hills of San Francisco and its connections to so many other communities, but the area is rife with murder. There are the famous ones, the doodler, the Zodiac, the Golden State Killer, but there are also the confounding one-offs, the cold cases. I could never pin down what was so enticing about this thing. The proximity, the mystery, it didn't matter to my adolescent brain. I loved it. I'm not sure when the story of the Sausage King, Stuart Alexander, first caught my attention. I doubt it was a story in one of those magazines, since it didn't involve a pretty young blonde woman like Natalie Holloway. Perhaps it was when I first discovered Wikipedia. However I discovered it, the details still grip me to this day. It was on June 21st, 2000, that Stuart Alexander, the self-dubbed Sausage King, shot and killed three people in cold blood in the waiting area of his family's sausage factory. He starts loading his gun and he comes out and he shoots all three of them. How could you not win that case? It's a triple murder on videotape. That's Paul Hora, an attorney that would go on to prosecute Stewart for the murders. While on the case, Paul had to view the security footage of the shooting several times. I haven't seen the footage. It was destroyed in a routine cleaning a few years ago, but I've heard it described over and over again by others. What people seemed most shocked by was the fact that Stewart committed the act fully knowing he was being recorded. He actually set up those cameras himself and started recording right before the shooting. What I've learned from the people who watched the footage, in some cases like Paul, several times, is that it's practically a snuff film. Uh, it's in black and white, and there's no audio. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just horrifying watching it. It's, it's unbelievable. The troubles began when Stewart had taken over the factory after his father's death in 1993. While his father had always run the business with little issue, as soon as Stewart took over, that changed. The process in which the sausage was being made 
came under scrutiny from federal and state health inspectors. The actual root of the issue has been debated amongst nearly every person I've interviewed. Some have said it was a problem with the smoker. Others wonder if Stewart tampered with his family's recipe. Some have said new health codes had been passed, but he refused to come into compliance. According to some, and the trial's transcript, he was cited for not heating the sausage to a high enough temperature that would make it safe to consume. The real story is far more complicated. I'll get into that more later. After months of back and forth with inspectors, it was clear to many involved that things were at a breaking point. It just wasn't clear yet what that meant. On June 21st, four inspectors arrived at the sausage factory, intending to get to the bottom of what was going on. What happened next was completely unexpected. When Stewart learned that the inspectors, two from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and two from the California Department of Food and Agriculture, were in his lobby, he turned on his security cameras. One of the inspectors left the lobby to wait outside for a police assist. The inspectors had called it in before stepping foot into the building. They'd had run-ins with Stewart before and knew it could get ugly. Stewart armed himself with a couple of pistols, tucking one into his waistband. He walked out into the waiting area where three of the four inspectors were standing. Then he shot the ceiling. I have the first 22 seconds of the video, stripped from some old laptop Stewart's defense attorney was able to scrounge up. In those 22 seconds, the three inspectors are milling about. Then there's some movement in the bottom left corner of the screen. The inspectors hit the deck as some plaster is sprinkled from the ceiling. Then, based on what I've learned over several interviews, Stewart shoots all three, execution style. Stewart realizes a fourth inspector is waiting outside and runs after him, firing shots and screaming down the street, I've been robbed. The fourth inspector is able to get away, so Stewart returns to the waiting room. The footage was still rolling the entire time he was gone, and it's clear at least one inspector was still alive, wiggling an arm on the video. Stewart then shoots all three again, this time ensuring that they're dead. It's just words can't describe it. The police were called and arrested Stewart. What seemed an open and shut case dragged on for months, nine in total, according to the trial's judge. The defense argued that Stewart, having sustained multiple head injuries over the years, lacked essential impulse control, and his violence and temper could be attributed to mental illness. In Stewart's mind, they said, the inspectors that were just doing their jobs were threatening him and the business that his family had built, his father's pride and joy. And it was kind of a, their family identity. It was the family legacy. It was their, you know, they had been in business for 70-something years. To the prosecution, it was as simple as Stewart was an aggressive man, used to getting what he wanted, and went for the last resort. My impression of him was that he ultimately, when he was, at the time when he committed the crimes, he was kind of a bully. Um, 
He was, if things didn't go his way, he would do what he had to do to make sure things did go his way. The trial was unwieldy from the start. Other accusations were made, whispers about what else Stewart may have done. Some suspected that it might have been Stewart who was responsible for his younger brother's death five years earlier, so he wouldn't have to share the inheritance of the family business. Some suspected that Stewart had even been responsible for his father's passing as well, that he'd had enough and wanted control of the family business. Even more alarming was the story about what Stewart was planning to do with the inspector's bodies. There was a rumor that he had a whole plot for these inspectors. And his plot was he was going to kill them, and then he was going to grind them up and make them into sausage, and which was kind of more a Sopranos type of thing. But it was, you know, starting to think about it after that, we started thinking, yeah, he might have done that. If the fourth one wouldn't have got away, yeah, that could have been possible. Really? Yeah. I think he was capable of doing something like that. The videotape, have you seen it? No, but um, I would love it if you could describe it. Don't look at it. It's awful. Okay. Really, don't look at it. When we showed it on the video in front of the jurors, I mean, <laughs> there, were, there were 15 jurors crying. Yeah. I mean, it was awful. Yeah. And, you know... I come, uh, I've seen some pretty tough cases, and boy, that choked me up a little. That, and uh, during the penalty phase when the victims came in to testify. That's Judge Vernon Nakahara. He presided over the case. Stewart was given the death penalty in late 2004. He died on death row just over a year later from natural causes, or so it would appear. He was only 44 years old. Even though Stewart is gone and Vernon himself is now retired, the videotape of the murders still affects him today, 21 years later. But that's not the only aspect of the case that stood out to him and others involved. And as I've delved more deeply into it, it isn't for me either. There's more to this than meets the eye. Who was Stuart Alexander? What did he mean to the community of San Leandro? Why did he do it? Was he really being harassed by inspectors? Was he suffering from mental illness and if treated, could the tragic murders have been prevented? Or was he simply a product of his upbringing and a lack of accountability? The question of privilege runs rampant throughout this story. In countless interviews, people who knew him knew his family remember Stuart being bailed out time and again by his father any time his temper got the better of him. But at the most critical moment, no one was there to save him. Did he really think he'd be able to get away with it? Did he know his actions would destroy his family's business? And what was it about that sausage? What was it that made that sausage so special that people are still talking about it to this day, despite everything that happened? None of these questions have been easy to answer. I've spent the last nine months trying to figure that out for myself, as I've interviewed the attorneys on the case, Stewart's childhood friends, 
and some of the family of the victims. In order to better understand this story, we have to understand where we are. That's the best place to start. San Leandro isn't a city that shows up in the news often. Before I became interested in this case, I had never been there. And even though I was born and raised in the Bay Area, have lived here almost all of my life, I'd never heard of it before. I have a lot of extended family in the East Bay, particularly Berkeley and Oakland, so I was at least closer in proximity than I realized growing up. I decided to look more into its past to better understand what I was getting myself into. Before the Sausage King, the city's biggest claim to fame, the annual Cherry Festival, which dates back to 1909. Now, the first thing that comes up when you Google San Leandro is the Sausage King and the murderer, Stuart Alexander. Former city council member Bob Glaze had to show me that for himself the other day. So I, I pulled up uh, Wikipedia, and the first person on the list is Stuart Alexander is notable people. Yeah, okay. So if you're looking to if you're looking to see uh, uh, what San Leander's all about, and you live in uh, North Carolina, first thing is it's Stuart Alexander, sausage maker and mass murderer. <laughs> Bob served a couple stints on the San Leandro City Council, about 17 years in total, starting in the 1980s and ending in 2005. He's about as San Leandro as it gets. When we met for our interview at the Manor Grill in the city, all the waitstaff knew him on a first-name basis. Of course, Stuart Alexander wasn't the only notable name on that list. There were others. Um... <laughs> Film producer uh, that worked on uh, the three Jaws films. The ones that we always remembered was Lloyd Bridges and uh, uh, I forget, the, what was the other guy? Um, Lloyd Bridges was number one on our list. Of course, Tony Lima. And uh, uh, Harold Perry was an actor during the uh, silent films. Honestly, I didn't know who any of those people were. My mom is a silent film buff, so Harold Perry sounded somewhat familiar, but ultimately none of those names rang a bell. But I didn't have the heart to tell Bob that. It still bothers him, more than 20 years later, that Stuart Alexander is still what puts San Leandro on the map. It's funny because I, I thought it would be something that would, you know, eventually blow over like that. But you, you start to see it, every once in a while it comes up and it talks about San Leandro's Sausage King and it goes into the whole thing. Before the Sausage King, San Leandro was like any other town in the Bay Area. Like most of the East Bay, San Leandro was first home to Native Americans, members of the Ohlone tribe. Spanish settlers colonized the area in the 17 and 1800s, which was followed by the establishment of the California mission system. In 1872, San Leandro officially became an incorporated town of Alameda County. The San Leandro most people know today is markedly different from what it was decades ago. The city underwent a business boom in the middle of the 20th century, 
as local politicians passed tax breaks to attract burgeoning businesses. My father and Stewart's uh, father were very good friends. His the sausage factory was right across the street from our business, our family business. So we all kind of grew up together. That's Gordon Galvin, a San Leandro native who served on the city council from 1994 to 2001. San Leandro, uh, you know when I was growing up and Stuart was growing up, was really controlled by, you know, a handful of families that had been there for years. They had businesses, they were known. The mayor knew them, the police chief knew them. They all, you know, socialized together. So it was a real close-knit community. The city itself is relatively small compared to most of its neighbors. As of the 2020 census, there were only about 91,000 residents in San Leandro. To put that in perspective, in nearby Oakland, the population is over 440,000. In my quest to learn more about what San Leandro is like today, I found that a number of the links on the city's website don't seem to work. When I clicked on the history of San Leandro, the page was blank, except for a page under construction notice. When searching for police department announcements, I was redirected to an HTTP error 404 message. Luckily, while reporting on this story, I got to know the layout of the city better, and more of its history. During the decades when San Leandro was a business town, the small business owner was king and schmoozed on the regular with the mayor and other local politicians. Meetings happened in steakhouses and dark bars. The main strip of downtown boasts a modest collection of restaurants and businesses painted in varying shades of terracotta and burnt sienna and surrounding the neighborhoods are golden hills that Northern California is known for. The entire city tops off at just a little over 15 square miles. The majority of that radius is dominated by manufacturing businesses and a generously sized marina. But I'm losing my point here. The city used to be best known for two things, its large Portuguese community and sausage. Yeah, it was, it was, it was funny because <clears throat> Linguisa is pretty much made in this area of California. It was predominantly San Leandro, and in the New Bedford Fall River area of Massachusetts, which is another heavily Portuguese populated area. And I had never heard of it. That's Nick Nicosia. He's also a sausage maker in San Leandro who operates out of a factory just down the road from where Stewart's business used to be. Linguiça sausage is a specific type of sausage made in Portugal. Ground pork marinated in red wine, paprika, and garlic, amongst other spices. Is it spicy or is it just spice? Just spice flavor. It's got garlic, wine, uh, vinegar, and then the spices, smoked paprika. Many others were fans of the sausage as well. Yeah, it was, um, you know, there was a lot of claims through the years that they were the best, and... Uh, I'd probably be one of those to say, yes, they were, because linguisa was really good. I had pigged out on it, and everybody did, but yeah, when you overindulge on it, yeah, it takes a while to get over it. It's funny because it's, in time, it seems like, you know, you revert back and you say, whoa, that was really good. It had really, really good flavor, mm -hmm. maybe a red wine, and it was a secret recipe of some sort, but mm. um, I grew up eating linguisa and eggs as a kid. Yeah. And uh, we always had Santos linguisa. Okay. Generally speaking. 
for family barbecues or holidays? Was it like a treat? Generally, there were breakfast, breakfast meals for us. Yeah. Oh, okay. We would have it with eggs. Okay. Occasionally, we would have them um, like a sausage on a roll. It's been described by every person I've spoken to, except for maybe one or two, as delicious, smoky, and frequently indescribable particularly the one made by the Santos Linguisa factory in San Leandro. Nothing compares to it from what I've been told, and many lament that the beloved product no longer exists. The Santos Linguisa factory opened in 1921 in San Leandro operated by a Portuguese couple, Pia Dot and Antonio Santos. The recipe was originally Pia Dot's, and they sold their product initially out of the basement of their house. But at one point, the lot next door became available, and they expanded into a factory. In those days, San Leandro was well-known as a haven for the Portuguese community, with several churches and even an annual festival dedicated to the community. The Santos Linguisa factory became a rising influence among the Portuguese population and in the city for decades. And with that was huge because um, San Leandro one time had one of the largest Portuguese communities um, anywhere on the West Coast. And so when you were in with the Portuguese community and the hall and everything was here and the statues here and everything else, um, you had an inn. And, you know, early on in the years, we even had the president of Portugal visit San Leandro and wanted to see San Leandro because it was steeped in, in, in the Portuguese tradition and everything else. And so that was another thing, is he was part of a community. Even though, you know, it was Tweedy that, that got in, he was still part of that Portuguese community. And IDS Hall and Holy Ghost and like that, he was there. And the family's name was there. And so that was, that was huge. Eventually, Pia Dot's grandson, Herman Tweedy Alexander, took over the business in the 1950s, when the city was at its peak in business relations, as well as with the thriving Portuguese community. Tweedy earned his nickname as a baby from his grandmother, Pia, because he supposedly cried like a Tweedy bird. The Portuguese community and the business boom inevitably declined. And somewhere among these disappearing traditions and practices the Santos Linguisa factory's legacy would be tarnished. In just a brief few minutes, more than 20 years ago now, Stuart would effectively destroy his family's nearly 80-year-old business, the legacy left behind by his father and grandparents. I'm still trying to make sense of it all. But to make matters simpler, we have to start with Stuart. Like it or not, he is the front and center of this case. A troubled young man, born into a prominent, hard-working family, grew into a bullish, quick-tempered adult. He felt that no matter what he did, he was being victimized by everyone, from his peers, the city, to government regulators. So used to getting what he wanted, he took matters into his own hands, like he'd done his entire life. More on that next week.
The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Matt Pittman, Don Bastida, and Eric Brooks are our producers. With production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Cover art created by Dre Irabaran. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager for KCBS Radio. The Sausage King is a production of Odyssey. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.